Hello and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia, the treasurer for the committee, and today I'm thrilled to be introducing the amazing Dame Fiona Kidman, speaking about her book, All the Way to Summer. Dame Fiona marked her 80th birthday last year with the publication of All the Way to Summer, a beautiful volume of stories, all moving, insightful, and written with love. The final stories trace her own history of love, a memoir of significant people from childhood and beyond. The collection is the perfect starting point for a conversation about her extraordinary life. The conversation was recorded at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival, an annual weekend of wonderful writers, curious audiences, and beautiful Marlborough. The festival is aimed at anyone who loves great writers and writing. If you haven't read the book before the session, you'll definitely want to afterwards. For now, please enjoy Dame Fiona Kidman speaking to Tessa Nicholson. Um, my name's Tessa Nicholson and I'm the MC for this session with Dame Fiona Kidman. There will be time for questions at the end of the session and there are a couple of Fiona's books for sale. She did a session yesterday and sold out of, of a number of others, but there were some very good, two very good books who out there for sale um, after the session and Fiona is more than happy to sign them for you. Um, so... Welcome, Morena. Dame Fiona, it's been seven years. The very first festival, 2014, Marlborough Book Festival, you were here. Um, you've been very busy since then. There's been a couple of novels and there's been um, this latest book, which I, I think is rather lovely. Dame Fiona turned 80 last year. And instead of us giving her presents, she gave us this present, and it's called All the Way to Summer. It's a collection of short stories and of love and longing. Now... With the title, why did you choose this title, this story, as your, as your actual title for the book? Well, first of all, may I say Tenakota Katoa, and it's just, again, how lovely it is to be here um, with, in Marlborough, and I'm, I'm having such a lovely weekend. And thank you for getting up early and yes. braving this very cool and lovely but bracing um, Blenheim morning to be here so early. Um, and, yeah, it's just uh, just great. All the way to summer, um, I chose that particular title because the story the, that, it ref, the, that it reflects, the t it's the title story of a particular story which is really autobiographical. Of course, fiction writers say they're not in their stories, and yesterday I spent some time managing, I thought, I hoped to convince the, author, the audience, my audience, that um, it wasn't me and my stories at all. But in this particular book, quite a few of the stories are about me, and they are a kind of a statement when having arrived at, at the age of 80, that there are things that I wanted to say about myself. And... All the Way to Summer is about my childhood, about growing up in the far north of New Zealand um, in rather odd circumstances and being a, a, a considered a slightly odd little um, girl, only child, who, um, who did weird things like divining water and, um, and had parents who was who were going through a crisis in their lives. It was straight after World War II. And we were living in, in Kirikiri, which, again, I, I mentioned yesterday, was a, a, a rather interesting town divided by class in the sense that there were a lot of um, Raj people, people who'd, military people, ex-military people who'd been in um, Tianjin and Shanghai um, and were leaving at the end of the uh, Japanese Sino Wars and wanted somewhere nice to come that had a nice climate. They didn't want to go back to Britain. And they, um, they wanted a nice climate and they wanted a place where essentially they had servants. <clears throat> and my parents were in a rather invidious situation at that time in their lives, and they were servant people. But the mother is, is 
a strong-minded person, and that is certainly reflects my mother, and she's kicking against the traces a little bit. And the, the child in the story, this, um, she, she, is, she is finding her way and establishing herself as being a little bit different and also considered a bit difficult, which I, I think I, I have to confess is pretty much myself. So it was a statement about myself and my family, really, and it was, it's important to me. These are a collection of new short stories, but there's also a number of older short stories. So yes. how, how did you choose which ones to include in this book? Because I, want, I went back through my several collections, and there are some stories which I really wanted to, um, I wanted to present again. Short stories are notoriously the... Um, the difficult things to sell or so your publishers tell you. <laughs> I love short stories, but when you say that you want to do short stories, your publisher, your editor sort of rolls her eyes and if you're quite, you know, you've been publishing with that, them for a long time, they'll say, well, perhaps we'll, perhaps we'll do a collection now. <laughs> um, you know, um, can, you, can you find a particular selling point for them? And so quite often you'll find that short stories are, have um, connecting threads in them these days. There are not a lot of, of recent collections where every story is totally standalone. So this one has the theme of love and longing. And I, arriving at 80, I think um, there are a lot of things that one can complain about in their lives, but um, there's also a great deal of good fortune that you can look back upon. And I tend to think that I've had a lucky and loving life. And I wanted to reflect that in the stories that I was presenting. Um, the stories, the older stories, all the stories are rewritten from the bottom up. I was going to ask that. You've you refreshed them. Why did you refresh them? Because the, since you wrote them, times have changed or you've changed about the way you felt about them? Um, well, I, I, I think I wish that I had had the... Um, the craft that I had to, to go with the energy that I had when I was a young writer. <laughs> uh, I look back on some of my... And so there's nothing that's actually changed. The stories are actually exactly... Everything happens exactly as they did in the, in the original stories. But I've just gone through word by word. And one of the things I'm very strong about is when people ask for advice about, could, about writing, I say, there's all sorts of things that I could say. But I say, look for strong verbs and get rid of adverbs, and sh meaning show, don't tell. And, and so that you can find, you can get, put new life into a, into a piece of fiction if you, if you freshen up the verbs. And, you know, if somebody, instead of somebody saying something all the time, if they blurt it or they shout it or they shriek it or something, mm. you know, that, that, that can be far more interesting and lively. So I was just going through and also looking for things with more interesting grammatical um, constructions. Um, well, you started writing in 1979. You just said you wish you'd had the craft that you had with the energy back when you started, when, when your first book was published in 79, I should say. But has, has your style changed a lot over the years? Um, well, I think I, I think the voice is the same. I mean, you've, you're given one voice, I think, and essentially the themes and preoccupations of your li of a lifetime don't don't really change. I should say that I have actually been writing since I was 22. Mm. I started to seriously call myself a writer when I was 22 years of age. Um, I was listening at the time to. Um, well, what had happened was that I was working, I, I was a librarian, and I worked in a public library until I was about um, the ripe old age of 20, the year I got married. And I then went to work in a boys, as a librarian at a boys' high school. And after a year or so, um, I became pregnant. And in those days, this was 1962, you didn't be pregnant in a boys' high school. Um, and the principal suggested to me kindly that I might like to go home and knit some booties. 
I bet that went down well. <laughs> because as I should add that my husband was teaching there too. So, so you know, it was the evidence that we actually had sexual intercourse. <laughs> Not allowed in 1962. No, no. <laughs> uh, so, so, so the, you know, so it was better that I went home. And of course, he kept his job. <laughs> but anyway, what I so I started painfully to do some pale green moss-stitched matinee jackets. I've not ever been very skillful in that direction. And playing on radio at the time was the Pencaro series. I don't know whether any of you remember Nell. Uh, Nell Scanlon of the Pencaro series, a great stories about rural life, New Zealand women's lives. And I thought, oh, this is about New Zealand. This is about women's lives. This is like my mother's life. Mm -hmm. And I thought I could do that. <laughs> and so there was a competition running at the time um, in, the, in Rotorua, where I lived there. The um, local theatre was running a, uh, um, a competition for a play so I went in for it, and um, I thought, well, just write about the things you know. I mean, obviously, Nell Scanlon does. But just going back a little bit, before I, I met and married my husband, I had, um, I had run with the local rugby clubs. And so I, I wrote a play, sort of a forerunner, I suppose, to Foreskin's Lament, um, and, uh, <laughs> but seen from a girl's eye perspective. And the play came back with the comment that this, uh, and I have said this before, so forgive me if I've said you've heard me say it before, but it, it came back with the judge's comment that this must have been written by the dirtiest-minded young woman in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> but it goes further because, lady, you could be called Filthy Fiona. Oh, I've been called filthy Fiona. I've been called all sorts of things, yeah. <laughs> And I mean, we look at you and we think, seriously, this is only 40, 50 years ago? And, <laughs> and seriously, I'm a nice old woman. <laughs> I can imagine you knitting booties now. <laughs> <laughs> Never learn. There are, as you say, so many autobiographical stories in here. And, um, and there are also some very new stories, which... It must have been quite hard for you to write. Silks and, and Stippled is about events that... It's silks, it's, it's Vietnam. Ian was very, very ill. Yeah. And you thought you were going to lose him there. And Stippled, the last one, is Ian's death. And it's... How hard were they to write? I think sometimes because words have always been what I did and... and um, there's a compulsion, there's simply a compulsion to find a way to express the inexpressible, the things that are, are very difficult to talk about and very difficult to, to live with. Um, so, so Silks is about um, uh, a trip that Ian, my, hus my late husband, who was here with me at the first, um, the first festival seven years ago, and we had the most wonderful time here together. Um, and just again, I digress all over the place. <laughs> the wonderful thing I had was just um, released the, um, the Infinite Air, uh, my Gene Batten novel, and your wonderful festival organisers organised for me to fly over Blenheim in a two-seater plane with a helmet and a long white scarf flowing behind me. Um, you can put that up if you like, because I thought I'd just bring it back for old times. Sake. <laughs> so that's us. <laughs> but you can take it down. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like it up there. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so, so Ian died suddenly about three, three years ago. But, but um, before that and after the... Uh, um, I'm trying to think of the sequence of events. Now, it must have been before we came to, to Blenheim. We had gone on a trip to Hanoi. Ian travelled extensively in Asia. He was a voluntary worker for an NGO um, called the Cambodia Trust and had a Cambodia Trust Aotearoa branch in New Zealand. So he used to go up to... It was um, to, to do with um, working with um, limb-fitting 
a limb-fitting centre, so people who'd um, had lost limbs in, in mines, you'll know about all the, the mines that blow up in, in uh, Cambodia, perhaps. So he would go up to Cambodia two or three times a year, and um, on what was to be his last trip, because he was starting to fail a little bit, and it, the trips were not as easy. We hadn't been to Hanoi to, together. We'd been to Vietnam a number of times. Um, I, I have a particular passion about, um, about Vietnam, but I can come back to that as a sort of slightly separate subject. We agreed that I would go up to, um, I'd go up to Bangkok and he'd come fly from um, Phnom Penh and meet me in the airport in Bangkok and we'd fly on to Hanoi together. Um, all of which we did, except that he was, he, what I saw him in the airport in Bangkok and I realised that he was not himself, there was something quite odd about him. But he insisted that he'd be fine when he got on the, got on the plane and we, went, we got to Hanoi. But he wasn't, he just became more and more ill. And um, we finished up and we, we landed up later that night in the French Hanoi hospital where he, um, he nearly died and he was there for three weeks. He'd, had, he'd caught a, a virus which had, um, you know, a, a terrible virus which had, um, his kidneys had started to fail. So it was a very terrifying um, experience. However, he, he did recover, he was a strong old man and it recounts really my experience of being spending those weeks in Hanoi and um, coming to terms with the possibility of his death and, um, and thinking about our lives together um, and various things happen along the way. What actually drew me to, um, to Vietnam I've had a, a strange lifelong obsession with the French writer Marguerite Duras, who was um, who wrote, who was a, a novelist who wrote um, a famous book and film called The Lover, and also one called. Um, but right back when I was a very young woman, she wrote the screenplay for a film called Hiroshima Mon Amour, and I've become. I became a bit obsessed with her life and I started tracking around the places that she had been mm. um, and, and she, was, um, she had been born um, along the, the, Me the Mekong River uh, near um, Saigon or what is now Ho Chi Minh City. So that was one of the places that I had been to um, quite early in the early 90s, 1992 I think. Um, went to um, went to Ho Chi Minh City when it was still very wild west and got a hired a, a flat bottom barge and went up the Mekong to look for the place where she was born and then her mother had worked in a boarding house which had echoes of my mother's life too um, in Hanoi so I was I'd actually wanted to go to Hanoi to find the boarding house did you find it I look, I don't know. Events <laughs> overtook me. Yeah. Yes, yeah, events oh, totally course, overtook yeah. me. I think I saw what I think I saw the lake that it was beside. Mm. But you know, who knows? Who knows now? Mm. Yeah. You said you love short stories. Do you prefer writing short stories to maybe a novel? I would have said so earlier in 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 my writing life. Mm. Um, I'm not sure that I do now. Um, in a novel, you have lots of corners to hide. True. You, ha or you have some corners to hide. You don't in a short story. The short story has to work all the way through. I'm not saying that you shouldn't strive for perfection in a novel, but there are just the exactness needed for a short story. I think as I get older, I find that... Um, Mind you, the last one, Stippled, came to me whole. And that's what, what I find with, with short stories over the years. They've come to me as whole concepts. I don't have to 
think, is this a novel or is this a short story? Mm. Um, I, I know what it's going to be. The form always presents itself to me. But I did start as a short story writer and it took me a while to get published. But there were a few, there were a few, there was a, a wonderful man called Noel Hoggard who had a little uh, press called Arena. And I always remember him accepting one of my stories. And that was quite special. And, you know, he mostly, there were not a lot of women writing in those days. And he accepted one of my early stories. And I was very touched by that. I am quite intrigued. Like, there's, there's one short story in, he, in there, um, A Needle in the Heart. Um, mm -hmm. And basically it starts off from when she's a young child and it goes right the way through to when she's an adult. And within 20 pages, I've read an entire woman's life and I've been, you know, dragged into her life and I feel like I've just read a novel. I, yeah. But it's only 20 pages. Oh, it took me 20 yeah. minutes to read. And it's like, how on earth do you achieve that? That's, um, you're talking of a lifespan in, in a short few pages. I'm really interested in the way that time can be used in, in fiction. And I've always been a, a great follower of Alice Munro, the Canadian writer's um, uh, work. She is, I guess to me, she won the Nobel Prize for Literature, writing just writing short stories. And she modelled herself on Chekhov. You know, or she, she didn't model herself, but she always spoke of Chekhov as being her great inspiration. So I guess for me, Chekhov and Munro have both been considerable influences in the way that they use time and the, mm. the way that you can take people forward and then back to the, so that the, the, you know what's happening to the characters before they know themselves. In other words, there's a sort of um, a line that la lay, laid out for life in a sense, which yeah. is sometimes difficult to escape. And Esme, the, the central character in that, doesn't really ever escape her. Well, she does. In the end, mm. love is restored Daughter, to her. Mm. And she's modelled on, she is, she was a real person. Oh, really? Yeah. So who's that based? Is that based on someone you knew? Yeah, she was Fam my mother-in-law. Oh, really? Yes. I did not know that. So she was not close to Ian for many, many years? No. Wow, I'm going to go read that again now. <laughs> I recommend that you I've read it. I've never said that in public before. <laughs> Yeah, but it is true. Did you write that when Ian was alive? Yes. And how did he feel about that? Uneasy. Mm. Siblings too, that, you know, he had siblings. Yes, he did. So, yeah, yeah. So. That must be a difficult thing when you're writing about people that you know or your writing's part of their story mm. and then having them read it and maybe take it the wrong way. I mean, a breed of women. 1979. That was your mm. first novel. Mm. Huge. Sold 9,000 copies in the first few weeks. 35,000 copies in a year. Never got nominated for an award, even though the, I think the award winner that year only sold 350 copies or something like that. Come but on. this is this is filthy Fiona that came out from from this. But that was actually a story of of ten women that mm. you had known plus yourself mm. over your lifetime, and. You wrote, it's about women emancipation, it's about, you know, having many, being able to choose lovers, mm. sex outside mm. of marriage and all of that. Enjoying sex. Mm. Mm. You weren't allowed to do that in 1979 if you were a no, woman. No, And you came from an incredibly close family. I mean, you grew up with aunties and uncles and you were the only child in that family, grandparents and stuff. And when the book came out, a number of your family never spoke to you again. Um, oh, they did speak to me eventually. Eventually. You know, I, I, yes. I mean, they, they wouldn't. They were, my, my aunts and uncles wouldn't have the book in their house, houses. You know, but so, and, and they, they, say, they said things like, oh, well, dear, you did let yourself down a little. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, because... And, and I mean, I've just said that that is actually based on reality, but actually a breed of women was far more fictional than people mm. assumed. And people did assume that I was, that it was exactly, Harriet Wallace was exactly the, the trajectory of my own, of, it was exactly me. So I'd been a bit naive, I think, in the sense that um, 
that the character followed the trajectory of my life without actually having exactly the same um, experiences. But I mean, it's a small, a girl comes from small country place, comes to town, moves to the city, um, works in television, all of those things, all of which I did, which I'd done. So it was really fairly naive of me to think that people wouldn't say, oh gosh, that's your life. Yeah. (laughs) It must have been horrendous for you in the sense that you have finally got your first book published. It's selling phenomenally. It was banned from schools, it yeah. was banned from libraries, it was banned from your relations' homes. That must have been pretty sort of like, hmm, what a come down. I mean, I thought this would, you know, I've got my first book published, but then there's all this negativity around it. Yeah, well, yes, it was. And, and I, I remember the, re- the review that cut me to the heart was the one that said, ah, me, it was written by a man, of course, ah, me, ah, woe, the thinking woman's Mills and Boone. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, I respect Mills and Boone's <laughs> right, readers, and that's that's fine, but that I didn't think that's what my book was. Um, and it was hard, um, and I kind of kept kept myself to myself for quite a yeah. while. Um, but in the end, the compulsion to write over overrides that, and so... I just wrote the next book. I yeah. mean, that's all you can do. Because I did wonder that. Did, it, did you start to doubt yourself? No, I don't think I did. Good on you. I mean, well, you know, I was stuck with it. I was mm. stuck with the, the knowledge that I was a writer, that that's what I wanted to do more than mm. anything else in the world. The very first copy, or your, your, your first draft, you ended up incinerating out in your backyard, and I think it was 110,000 words or something, and I, I read something, you, you'd said somewhere that you had these 10 people, 10 women, in your mind when yes. you were writing the book, and you realised that they were all clamouring within your brain, and they were taking over, Yes. and so you had to get rid of them taking over the book, and you threw the, you burnt the draft, and you started again. Um, that must have been a massive learning curve to not let the characters overtake your yeah. processes. Yes, yes, that's right. And it's also, I think also the process of entering fictional worlds, um, that, that, that the character became a character who was apart from those people. Mm. And so I could look at, at the character of Harriet Wallace objectively and let her have her experiences and be a real person. Mm. Yeah. Well, you've done poetry, you've done plays, you've done short stories, you've done novels, you've done fiction and non-fiction in novels. What is your preferred genre? Oh, whatever I happen to be writing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I spent 20 years in the screen industry Mm. um, writing. I wrote, um, I wrote, I wrote, I wrote soaps for years. Oh. I wrote, I started, I was the first woman writer, um, screenwriter in the country, and I started work on Pokimanu, and then I moved on to, uh, I actually helped devise um, Close to Home, which I worked, Really? Yeah, yes, which I worked on for years. I um, didn't know that. Yeah, I did, and, and I worked... Was that fun? Or at times, at times it was fun, but you know, you, it, it's a much more pressured life. I was going to say, there's yes. pressure to get a, an episode out all the time. Yeah, yeah. yes. Um, and there's a lot of, um, oh, there are a lot of pressures within television, you know, a lot of people wanting to climb to the top and so forth. Mm. I'm not a very collaborative person, and you have to be collaborative in television, but, you know, I could, I could make more money in a month than a novel would make me in a year writing mm. for television. And so I had to, I had to have jobs. Mm. And fortunately, I had mostly writing jobs. But, um, um, yeah, I wrote Close to Home, Shark in the Park, Pokemon. I can't think of them all really yeah. now. But, um, but you, 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 as you just said, but, the, you, whatever you're working on at the time yeah. is your favourite. I suppose so, yes. Well, that never was, of course. But, but what I would say is that I, I don't think anything is wasted in a writer's experience 
And so across all the genre that I've had, I've learned things. From radio drama, I've learned how to, which I worked in for many years too, I learned to write dialogue. In television, I learned to look at the world through the eyes of a camera, which I found was helpful in writing concrete detail, concrete, vivid images. Because you have to know, I'm not, a, I'm not a good photographer myself. I'm technologically illiterate, actually. But you need to know what the cameraman needs to see so that they, they know their job is not to invent the scenes. Their job is to point the camera at what you've written for them. So I learned to, to look for detail. Um, oh, as a journalist, I worked as a journalist. I worked on contract for the listener for years. And a lot of these jobs I did simultaneously. Um, as a journalist, I learned to ask, ask questions and to, um, to have experiences that I wouldn't have had. You know, I, I was sent in the 80s down to the Chatham Islands for, for a week and I did a, you know, cover, um, they did their front cover article for that. Is there any genre you haven't or no. that you wish you'd done? Um, well, I've done all I can yeah, think of. Yeah, I can't <laughs> think of any others. That, and because you've also liaised on movies with your own books. And, yeah. Well, I have been a screenwriter, but I, I have never had one of my books made into a movie. If you did, which yeah. book would you choose? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I've never been without an option on my, my books mm. since 1981. I just have, the Film Commission have just never come across with a, with a, uh, wow. the wherewithal to make one. Um, what would I, I look, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, this may sound a silly thing to say, but I, I don't really care anymore. Mm. It's not the, it's not the important thing. Um, yeah. It's not the important thing. I'd like to ask you to read something from All the Way to Summer. Yeah. Um, because, and this is, I'd like you to explain why you've chosen this. It's Red Bell, it's in the very first section of, of the novel. So why, when we talked about it, why did you think to read this? Um, well, I think that it speaks to, the, to, speaks to the concept of the book, which is, is love and longing. And it's, it's, it is a new story, it's a contemporary story. Um, and um, it actually starts, I'm just going to read the end um, page or so. It starts in a supermarket and um, it's, it's about a, just an afternoon when the, the narrator um, has, has, has a, goes in, Meets a, a Cambodian person who's working in the um, in the, the fruit and vegetable section, and they have a conversation about um, his him trying to get his wife what out into, to New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Out to New Zealand, so he's he's longing for his wife to come. So that's love, love and longing, love mm. and longing. <laughs> and then there's a conflict with it. Because she's sort of being a bit distracted, the narrator puts her um, puts some th goods in somebody else's trolley. I don't know whether you've ever done that, <laughs> but it, but this person um, became very upset with me, and suggested that you know said why had I why had I tried to take her her <laughs> trolley? Why had I ta had to take her food? Um, she was clearly somebody who was having some sort of life crisis and I thought, you know, quite hard up and sad and so forth. And um, of course it wasn't, um, it wasn't, and the food didn't belong to either of us at that stage Ooh. because we hadn't actually paid it through. It. Yes. But anyway, so, so that sort of resolved and, um, and so anyway, here's the last part of it. So this has moved on, a, a week has passed since this incident. Another day, another place, a week had passed. I was in the art gallery in Auckland. It is a beautiful gallery with high soaring spaces. I had been roaming for hours transfixed. There was a whole room devoted to the pink and white terraces, the lost marvel in our history, consumed by the fire and ash of a volcanic eruption. 
The terraces were buried not far from where I had lived as a young woman. Gone like the Temple of Artemis or the Colossus of Rhodes, the Thermata, as the Greeks would say. The terrace is so lost that nobody knows anymore exactly where they are, even though this disappearance happened in a time when records and paintings had been made. I had encountered some people the day before in the hotel where I was staying. I had known one when I was young and he a child. We had spent an hour or more unpacking the past, who knew whom and how our lives intersected, old ties, histories and sorrows. The meeting had taken me back to another time in my life when I lived near the place where the terraces stood before they disappeared, before the eruption. I was shaken by this encounter, reminding me of my own metamorphosis from a wild and unhappy creature to a woman with a considered and careful life. I walked into another tall room, pale green and white, and stopped before a painting that took my breath away. The painting was called Focal Point. I had not heard of the artist, John Tunnard from Penzance. This work consisted of softly washed architectural shapes of precise geometrical design which vanished at a central point, and that point was marked by a dark, intensely red sphere. I recognised that sphere in an instant. The flame in an opal, a shining fruit, a heart, a drop of blood, call it what you will. Beside the painting was an account of the artist's inspiration. It had come from a poem by Cecil Day Lewis, written in wartime. So shall our time reveal long vistas of calm and natural growth, a pattern mysterious yet lucid, for love is the focal point of the pattern, and our ears shall unfold like a cluster of apple blossom in a fine tomorrow. That is how it is, I thought to myself. We trace our way through our shifting, precarious existence, questioning over and again, watching out for landmines, sudden explosions, seeking the truth of every moment. There are losses and separations and red beating hearts and flare-ups wherever our gaze rests. Sorrows become wounds and we each carry the burden of one another. But there is also love and the fine tomorrows. busy seven years, as I said, since we last talked. I mean, you've written two novels plus um, released all the way to summer. Um, let's start with the first novel that you wrote, um, which I think was 2015. It was after our festival. All Day at the Movies. Yes. Stunning book. Very different for you. It's a, it's a harrowing family saga that encapsulates more than 60 years. It begins in 1952, ends in 2015. It follows the lives of Irene Sandal and her four children, Jessie, who, whose father died in the first, Second World War, and she moves to Motueka, and um, she has three more children in, in her lifetime, Belinda, Janet, and, and Grant. The beauty, or the, what I love about this book, is that every chapter is a different year, and it's a different voice. So mm. we start with um, with Irene's voice, and then you know we go on to the children, and 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 all the way through to 2015. You said to me on Friday night that it's actually one of your favourite books mm, in that true. in that sense, but it is a very different book for you. Yes, I suppose it is. Mm. Do you mean both structurally? Yes, or? structurally, that the whole saga thing of taking chapters and putting them in years and, and things. I thought it was fascinating the way you've, you've written it. Well, I, I, I must make a, I'll make a public confession here. <laughs> I absolutely loved Elizabeth um, Strout's Olive Kitteridge. I just loved that book. And, and I thought, oh, this is such a good way to, you know, I like the linkage there. So I actually wrote it as a series of short stories. Oh. I, did, I did quite shamelessly borrow the, the structure. <laughs> but then my, my editor, Harriet Allen, said, uh-uh, this is actually a novel. This, is, this really would work better as a novel. And so we did quite a bit of work 
to to give it more flow so that it would be like a novel so that's that's where it actually comes from it's it's sort of accidentally a novel really <laughs> <laughs> beautiful characterizations but one of the things that struck me and it's probably because i just i just read all the way to summer about love and longing and the four children the two that or the one you know that were born out of love yeah. real love are the ones that go on to have happier lives. Well, not so much happy, but certainly Belinda tends to, whereas Jesse and, and Grant... No, Janice and Grant, Janice Janice and Grant, Grant yeah, don't Janice have and, good lives. Yeah, they, they don't. No. Was that intentional? I mean, is that... Mm, yes, yeah. yes. I mean, I've, I've been very close to somebody like Janice, and I know that women's lives can be as difficult mm. and sorrowful as that. And she is born out of a situation of desperation and so forth. And so, I'm a, you know, it's, it, we, we talk about, we know intellectually, even whether we're engaged or not, that, that New Zealand has got bad things going on mm -hmm. in us as well as good ones. And I, I thought I didn't want to shy away from that. And I, I tried... To, but you're quite right. There are two that are born out of love. Jessie actually is um, carried over from an earlier novel of mine called um, Songs from the Violet Cafe. Oh. She's a central character in in that earlier novel, and I, which was about uh, several girls working in, the, in a cafe in the 60s. And I had wanted to... I had at one stage planned to write a series of novels following yeah. more of their lives but in the end it was only Jessie and so Jessie is born out of her out of her mother's marriage mm. um, and her father dies in the war and then there's Belinda who is as you say born out of love mm. to a brief affair but because of the circumstances Irene marries this really awful man when she's already pregnant and um, mm. but Belinda's life is not. It's not easy. It's not, it's not easy, easy. But she, but she is rescued by, by love too. Well. She's rescued mm. by the love of the man she marries and his family, who accept and take on whatever she does. Mm. And Seth, who is forgiving and loving, mm. and so, ultimately, her life is okay. Mm. She finds her way, um, to 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 resolve the issues in her life. The other book, A Mortal Boy, which won just about every single award it could possibly win, but, you know, won for the books, excuse the pun, is that it won the Crime Award. And I think this is the first for you. You've written a book that won a Crime Award. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I've always had a deep... I mean, I'm interested in crime. I like crime. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean... I mean, I was very surprised. I was astonished when I, but because it's not really a, a mystery. I mean, you know no. exactly what's going to happen from the beginning. But it's a, a book about a crime. Um, I have written, uh, tucked away in a couple of my earlier collections of short stories. There are two very long linked stories about that have a have a body and have a mystery. Um, in A Needle in the Heart, there's, mm. a, um, there's, a book, there's a story called Families Like Ours in which a, a young boy goes missing and it's, um, how he, it's how the family deals with it and how that mystery is uncovered. And then in The Trouble with Fire, there's also, um, there's also a body and a mystery. So, you know, I mean, there is a sort of thwarted crime writer mm. working in me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is the book. It is actually available out. Um, it's, it's based on a true story. So, Addie, um, Albert Paddy Black, who was the second to last person in New Zealand to be hanged. He was an Irish immigrant. Um, great doubts about whether he was guilty. Um, but the story is set in 1952 around the... And it was, a, it was a changing time in New Zealand. Sid Holland was the Prime Minister. And um, and what I find found quite fascinating in it is 
Sir John Marshall, Jack Marshall, mm. who went on later to be um, Prime Minister, Gentleman Jack, as, as he was known. Your depiction of him is very, well, from that time, and it's based on research, is very different to the Jack Marshall that is probably in history books now. Um, in fact, a quote from the book, Gentleman Jack, they call Marshall, some gentleman, Major John Marshall, you'd think he'd seen enough killing on the battlefields to be sick of it. Oh, but no, he wants more. I suppose that's why Sid Holland made him Attorney General. He was so in favour of the death penalty, and he really doesn't come out of your book very well. No, he doesn't. That's, that's true, and that shocked a lot of people. However, and I think I've said this yesterday, in fairness, I believe that Jack Marshall was acting out of genuine belief and how people's um, beliefs are formed during wartime and on the battlefields um, in, in those times, it may not be the same as, as ours. I acknowledge that for him, I, I, I do feel that there was some, some genuine element, whereas with Sid Holland, it it seemed to me that his moral crusading, um, and he was the leader of that government at that time, was more political um, ploy. You know, he went and Holland had gone into, had swept into power in 1949, um, promising to improve the lot of farmers, or well, that's okay, but um, to break the power of the unions and to reintroduce the death penalty. And so that was, that was, in my view, sort of naked political ploy mm -hmm. rather than deep-seated um, belief. Yeah. I think Jack Marshall was different. And they, what, what, his, what Jack Marshall says in the book, people have said to me, but he couldn't have actually said that. Well, yes, I'm sorry, those are actually quotes out of government papers. Wow. So I've only, the words that he uses are only the words that are actually used in government documents. Oh, that makes it even more interesting. And it's an interesting book in the sense that you knew you had an ending, yeah. Albert Gets Hanged, research from Auckland through to Ireland. How did you decide where the beginning was? Um, well, um, it's, it moves backwards and forwards in time quite a lot. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, so I thought that we needed to meet Albert head on, front on, you know, so, so the book starts simply with him. But I, as far as the research was concerned, I was enormously helped by a man called Red Mayiska, who had written a book called, um, in the 1990s, called All Shook Up, which deals with the whole um, rock and roll um, bodgy widget era. And he also, and he'd, he deals with what is, was known as the jukebox killing. And he was... Um, he was immensely generous. I mean, we have a mutual thing. I'm helping him with a project too. So, but he was immensely supportive. He also had a lot of documents which would have been unavailable to me now, 25 years later. So he, he generously gave me all of those, and I, I, I forever bless him for that. And then I got myself, I wangled myself a, um, a an invitation to the Belfast Writers' Festival. Um, I was in London because uh, another earlier book, I think it was All Day at the Movies, was being launched in London at that time. Um, or was it The Infinity? I don't know, I can't remember exactly. But anyway, I got my publishers to contact the Belfast Writers' Festival and they invited me to Belfast, which meant I could actually hang out in Belfast for a while without too great an expense. It's, yeah. And, um, um, yeah, I mean, it was interesting at the festival. I was totally unknown in Belfast at that stage. They know about me now. <laughs> but I had, I had seven people. <laughs> how many males? Um, oh, I don't exactly remember. <laughs> We've been talking about how many males come to book festivals. I, I think I think it was about half and half. Yeah. Anyway, well, um, well, one of them was hmm, that was very strange because one of them turned into my stalker. But that was oh, really? Yeah, really. Yes. In Belfast. Or In Belfast. Yes. Oh, that's a bit scary. Well, it was scary, believe me. But that's a whole other story. We'll leave that one. Oh. Leave that one to the yeah. <laughs> something but, that I had, did know nothing about until I read uh, A Mortal Boy, is um, 
the is it the Maisengarb report? Oh, the Maisengarb report. Yeah, I don't yes. know whether any of you know about this, but could you, this was a report that the government set up because they were very scared about the behaviour of teenagers. Yeah. And we're talking in the fifties. Every single household in New Zealand was given a copy of this report. Well, it's actually well. You know, I'll talk to that. But, um, just before I do that, I'd just like to say, if I sound negative about Belfast, I, I had the most fabulous help there, and births, deaths and marriages, they're not into privacy at all in Belfast. <laughs> they opened their books, they looked at oh, them, they became incredibly excited about the whole thing, and they, they gave me such a lot of help in tracking oh. what the information down that I wanted. But the Mazengarb report, yes, the Mazengarb report was... Um, an inquiry into the morals of teenagers in New Zealand, and it was commissioned by Sid Holland, and Oswald Mazengarb was one of his best friends. They used to do magic tricks in each other's um, parlours after dinner and so forth, which is an intriguing yes, thing. He was a lawyer. He was quite a well-known um, lawyer, and he wrote a report on um, what, his, what was perceived as um, teenage immorality, um, bodgies and widgies and the rise of American culture following the Americans in wartime New Zealand and um, and the, the it had been said that um, there was in the Hutt Valley there was um, a lot of um, teenagers were having sex on the banks of the Hutt River oh. necking in the in the back of picture theatres and <laughs> gathering at milk bars and things were in a parlour state and so he wrote this terrifying report which was sent to every home and that's not quite correct what's in that book because it was actually every family that was receiving the family benefit at that ah. time. But that meant that my family got mine because I was 15 at the time. Of, Did you read it? Can you remember reading no, it? No, no, no. Oh, you weren't allowed it. to? It was, oh no, it was... No, because it might have given me ideas. <laughs> it's just a phenomenal thing that I didn't know anything about. And it's, you know, it's only sort of 60 years ago that we were, sort of, that the government was actually trying to influence the way children were raised. Yeah, yeah. yes. Well, I mean, it's like, I don't know, <laughs> just posting condoms to every letterbox. <laughs> Except that the postman wouldn't have to carry so much. I mean, the, the Mason Garden report was quite heavy. Yeah, I think it's Hell's Pizza that delivers the condoms, isn't it, to every two houses in the neighbourhood. They do in our neighbourhood. Oh, we never got them. Did anybody else get them? Oh, well, Wellington might be different. Oh, yeah, that's that heart influence, I think. That's there. Um, 2017, your beloved husband, Ian, married for 57 years, died. And I know that he has been a huge influence in your writing with his suggestions and, um, you know, he came up with the idea for you for a captive wife and, and lots of other things mm. throughout your life. And it must have been very hard. I'm very, very sorry because it is, it's a massive loss. Um, and before we go into questions, I think you would like to read a poem that is probably quite relevant. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll see how I go. So I, did, I, I do write poetry in this little book it's called Where Your Left, Left Hand Rests. And we had a marvellously happy time when I was a Catherine Mansfield Fellow in, in Monton in 2006. And I did a series of poems um, that were... I tend to write poetry when I'm a st in a state of great happiness. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not a mis I try not to be a miserable poet. Um, <laughs> um, so this is this was written. There was we used to go up into the mountains. You could get, um, you could get, for I think it was a euro. You could get a, a, a bus into the mount into the mountain villages, and we used to do that a lot. And there's one the garden at Saint Agnes was one that we were particularly fond of. So this is the garden at Saint Agnes, and it's Berean. hanging there in the rocks, the highest coastal village in all of Europe. The first challenge is to climb to the ruin of the castle at the very top, and the next is to climb back down. But somewhere around 800 metres, there is a medieval garden tended by two patient women. There were days when we needed to go to the hills to sit in the garden beside the low parterres shaped in crosses and stars, around the apple trees, 
to simply watch the small orange butterflies losing themselves in the spent tiger lilies, inhale the thyme and chives and potted sage, and watch the sheep of St Agnes grazing in all the dim, sweet world, green world below. If it was never more perfect than this, it would be enough and more. Dear, there is so much to remember. Well, um, on that, I'd like to open it up to questions. Has anybody got a question for our doyen of the writing industry, Dame Fiona? Could you just speak up just a little? Sorry. When you were saying um, having none of your books yet made into a film, yes. that wasn't the important thing. Um, so I wanted to, to find out what was for you the important thing. Well, as, hmm, as far as the, as far as the, 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 the films are concerned, it's not important because were they ever to be made, and I've lived with the anticipation of films being made because so many options have been bought on my books. Um, that, but I have always had the view that if they ever were made into, um, into a film, that they would, they would be, belong to somebody else, that they would be... I mean, Christine Lunens was just talking yesterday about how, the, how the, the book became Taika Waititi's, and I've always understood that, that you, you hand over ownership of something, so it's not... It's not my thing that would be handed over. The important thing in terms of a writer is, is that I, I, I'm able to say that, have the freedom and the will to continue saying the things that mean a lot to me. In terms of what's important to me in personal terms, um, I guess um, being the mother of two amazing kids um, having six wonderful grandchildren and five great grandchildren is is the centre of my life, and I've always thought been a person who's believed that you could live in the world as well as being a writer. I've never wanted to be in an ivory tower. I've always thought, you know, there are some writers who've said if I'm interrupted at such and such a time, I can't write again. That's not that's not the way that. A real writer works, a real writer just carries on with what is both their life's passion and also their job. And so it's been my job. But if I, one of my little ones comes up the stairs and sees me writing, I'm not going to say, go away. I have to, I have to live the life, you know? And coming here is part of living the life too. Any other questions? Yes. Um, I'm just wondering, even though it was scary when you were stalked in Belfast, is it yeah. possible um, that it might be the catalyst for a novel in the future? No, I'm, I, I should say, I'm, I've said before, I'm actually very deaf and yes. I'm going to have to ask... That was up to, when you were stalked in, in, um, in Belfast, while yeah. it was very scary, mm. could that be um, the catalyst for an, a, a book? Um, I've, I'm working on a collection of essays at the moment and I have written... Uh, an essay about that time, and I have written about being stalked. Yes, it it it, it was it was quite a, it was quite a terrifying experience, and you know it's only um, I don't know, it's just within the past I don't know three or four years, and I I have to say at my age it's I felt well I guess any person who's been any woman who's been stalked but at my age I felt ex extraordinarily vulnerable mm, mm. very because Belfast is you know although it has a smooth surface these days it's quite a scary place yeah oh the lady behind you just yeah. so you, no no you, yes you yes you <laughs> could you just speak up if you wouldn't mind in yesterday's session you mentioned that I'm black at the time, his girlfriend was pregnant. Do you know what happened to the baby? Do I know what happened to, the, to Albert Black's baby? Yeah. Yes, she's a lovely woman. I know her. Oh, um, wow. She is married happily and she has a family. She was adopted out at the time. She has been reunited with her birth mother but she has made a promise to her birth mother 
during her lifetime while the birth mother is still alive that she won't reveal either the birth mother or her own identity. Um, someday she will reveal herself. Um, she was she really wanted to know about Albert's life and she's um, she's been supportive of this mortal boy throughout the the journey. The book is actually dedicated in part to her. It's partly dedicated to Ian, my husband, and also to the to somebody who's called E. H. Did yeah. you know her before you wrote this, or did you? Yes, yes, I did. Oh, wow. yes. So, so although it was a sworn secret, mm. you know, sometimes secrets have a way of leaking, yeah. and there was an intermediary who did know about it, and through a series of, well, I'm quite a good researcher. Yes, I, yes, I, you I, are. I have my ways. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I made an approach, um, actually via her son, so Albert's grandson. Mm. And they're very, they're very supportive. Of it must be wonderful for her to actually know, and, and not only him, but his parents their story as well. Yes, yes, that's right. She has also, I've been able to reunite her with Albert Black's real-life family Family. in Belfast. Oh, wow. Which has been, I mean, there's not very many of them left. No. um, But she is now in touch with a cousin, so that's that's something. That must be a wonderful feeling. Oh, yeah, yes, absolutely. And I'm in touch with the relatives in Belfast too. As well. Yeah. Oh. So, I mean, th- there have been a number of things, but <clears throat> just one tiny thing. All the research I did, I never went to, I never went visited his grave at Waikamiti Cemetery. And about three or four weeks ago, I said, because I'm writing a, one of the essays I'm doing is also about um, the process of writing this mortal boy. And I got in touch with my, with Harriet, my editor, and I said, how about we, have you got time to come take, if I flew up, can you pick me up and we'll go to Waikamiti Cemetery and look at Albert's grave? So we, we did go up and, and all of that happened. And I, so just a few weeks ago, I was standing looking at his grave. It's Waikamiti Cemetery is a huge cemetery. And it's very, I'm a sort of, it wants you to know that this is a, a place about death, I think, because when you get there, there's a reception and there are three women dressed from head to foot in black and they have their hair dyed black and they wear black fingernails with one red one and things. And But they're wonderful. They're wonderful people. They help like mad. And the whole place is also ringed with us at that stage. I guess there's something else there now, but dark purple stocks with heavy scent. And I thought, you know, this is really a sort of death reception area. <laughs> but they were, they, they were wonderful and they helped us find this place. So Albert's grave is just a white cross um, with a no, no name on it and it's in a little gully which is swamp really and um, it's sort of so lonely there, it yeah. seems so lonely there, covered over with rushes I said to, to Harriet um, then I think we should go, I think, you know I think Alan Jacques, that's the boy who died, the other boy who died the boy who was killed in the incident is, I think he's buried here. So back we went to reception, and yes, they could fi- they could tell us where it was, but there's a tiny little chip of a plaque which is sticking out from under the roots of a large and spreading Pahutakawa tree, and that's Alan Sharks's grave. And so here are these two poor, silly boys who got into this terrible quarrel and here they are, Forgotten. almost side by side, oh. in death, and effectively disappeared to the world. I think you had one final question. Yes. This, um, you sound like you're still pretty busy with your research and your writing. Do you have, what sort of structure do you have to your, your work? Um, well, when I'm working on a project, I try really hard to work from about nine to one each day. I mean, as I said before, I, I, I am open to, to, to distraction, um, but I can always pick up the work, and if I don't, if for some reason or other I can't work from nine to one, I will work later, a bit later in the day. 
And um, a book usually takes me about a couple of years, really, because with the background work and preparation and research, because these days most of my work over the past 20-odd years has been to do with um, real-life characters who I've put into fiction. So Betty Gard and the captive wife, Jean Batten, and so forth. And that takes a lot of research. And, and so finally the time comes when I actually start um, the beginning of the book. And I put it off for as long as possible. But, the, um, and, but eventually the time comes and then I really try to work regularly. And I, I aim to do a, a thousand words a day. Um, so that's, I can do more, but if I do more, I get too tired. I mean, writing is quite a physically exhausting and emotionally um, exhausting pastime. And so if I do too much, I'll be too tired to start the next day. So I try and pace myself. So that's how I work. And the book, at that point, I expect the book to take about six months. Yeah. So... Dame Fiona, thank you very, very, very much for being here for the second time at the Marlborough Book Festival. I did forget to mention when, at the start that Hunter's Wines were the ones that were giving us our beautiful wine and were the sponsors of this session. We've enjoyed that, haven't we? We have indeed. <laughs> now, there are books for sale, and Dame Fiona is very happy to sign them for you. But thank you, as Fiona said, for being here. And thank you. Thank you, Chris. At least it's not minus three inside here, isn't it? So thank you again, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for being a lovely audience. Thank you, Tess. Thank you, Marlborough, for inviting me here. I we'll just see love you back in another here. seven years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh. That was Dame Fiona Kidman speaking to Tessa Nicholson at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about the event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do recommend it to friends and family. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.